Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Andy Fisk. He is the Executive Director of the Connecticut River Conservancy. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? I am struggling through laryngitis, but otherwise good. And yourself? I'm doing well. Doing well. Happy to be here. So let's start with a little about what the Connecticut River Conservancy does and your history. Sure. The Connecticut River Conservancy has been working to protect and restore the entire four-state Connecticut River watershed since 1952. So we've been doing this work for decades, and we were founded by a group of Citizens, elected officials, business owners, and yes, uh, the proverbial housewife who decided back in the 1950s that the river just wasn't living up to their expectations. And they said, we're going to we're going to do something about it. Is it just the Connecticut River or is it other waterways as well? That's a great question. So, yes, we work in the entire watershed. And so the Connecticut River, it's 410 miles long, starts. Actually, there's a little bit of it in Canada and goes all the way down to Long Island Sound. And then if you were to count all of the tributaries, some people have counted over 150 tributaries that drain into the Connecticut, but it's usually about 55 other major rivers that are direct contributors to the water in the Connecticut River before it goes down to Long Island Sound. And how far east and west does that go? Uh, depends on the state. And so in Vermont and New Hampshire, it's the half of the western part, excuse me, the eastern part of Vermont and about half of the western part of New Hampshire. And it's about a third of Massachusetts, and it's probably more like a quarter of Connecticut. And when the river comes down this way, because of the geology, it actually necks down to a pretty narrow width when you're in Old Lyme and Old Saybrook. And that's just because of the geology of the river. So it's pretty wide in Massachusetts, pretty wide as you're in northern Connecticut, and as you're coming down the river, it gets pretty narrow down in Old Saybrook and Old Lyme. Overall, is the Connecticut River cleaner than it was back in the 1950s when you started? Absolutely. You can say that again and again and again and again. We've made tremendous progress in the river, and it's so much cleaner than it used to be. And that's one of the great success stories, that we have put millions and millions, if not billions of dollars over the decades into all of the solutions that are going to make the river cleaner. And that's definitely something that we can celebrate. And I think we find in conversations with people, whether it's in Vermont or New Hampshire in certain communities, sometimes in Hartford, people are still saying to us, I don't go near the river. And that's uh, unfortunate because that's an older impression. And you can spend a tremendous amount of time in the Connecticut River and its tributaries and have a wonderful experience. Not all the time. But again, the river is so much cleaner because of the investment that we've all made. And so everyone out there who's paid their utility bills, your taxes, the money that we've put forward has had a real significant improvement, and we should celebrate that. What activities were happening back in the 50s related to the river that aren't happening today and vice versa that makes it cleaner? 
Yeah, I think back then it's sort of that truism that um, there was an away. So we thought if you chucked something in the river and it went away, that was the solution. And, you know, some people say the solution to pollution is dilution. Well, there was a lot of trash, municipal solid waste. Either that was just rolled down the bank, and you can find examples of old municipal dumps. It was basically the riverbank. Uh, there's stories about farmers and others farther up north. Wintertime, you go across the bridge, halfway on the bridge, you dump everything over onto the ice, and when spring melts, voila, goes away. And then, of course, um, sewage. So for a long time, the way we managed our sewage was to do really minimal treatment, and a lot of times there was just straight pipes. So when you flushed in some communities right into the river. And so now we know that you can do wastewater treatment and make clean water out of sewage. And the water that's discharged now is discharged to much, much cleaner standards than it was in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. What's the biggest issue facing the Connecticut River watershed going forward, would you say? Yeah, I mean, we like to talk about the river being clean, healthy, and full of life, right? And so the clean we've got, right? So there's no longer textile dyes or industrial pollutants or raw sewage in our rivers, right? So we're getting the clean down pretty well. Healthy, what does that mean, right? So just because you remove all the crud from the rivers doesn't necessarily mean that it's gonna be healthy. So we've got a lot of work to be able to make a river healthy. And that can mean something as simple as the way a river is organized, so if you look at a riverbank or the stream itself, it can be perfectly clean, but the way the rocks are configured or where the riverbank is eroding or if there's not enough vegetation or shade, that's not healthy. And so then once you have a stretch of river that's healthy, you can look at it and there may not be enough life in it, right? And so the full of life part is really whether you happen to have flippers or fins or pinchers or claws or hands or feet, we want all of those critters to be on our rivers and enjoying them. And so the full of life part is really the next long-term struggle. And that means restoring migratory fish populations, allowing for those critters that live in our rivers as resident species. So a brook trout, right? We love brook trout in New England. We need to be able to make sure that they can survive in our rivers now that we are living in a changed climate. The water is warmer, and it's going to get warmer. So how do we protect those refuge areas that will remain cold and allow those fish to get there? And so the work to make full of life for flippers and fins and bugs means things like removing dams. There are thousands of deadbeat dams in the watershed. And when you remove them, you allow habitat to be accessible, and these organisms can find more and better places to raise a family, and they can find those healthy places. So we know that there are hundreds of thousands of fish that live in our rivers year-round, and hundreds of thousands of fish that migrate up in the spring, out in the fall. There should be millions, millions and millions. So we want to see much more life in our rivers. What is a deadbeat dam? Sure. So a deadbeat dam in New England 
our economy was a powerhouse of the world 200 years ago because we harnessed hydropower. And so those dams that just held water back and made mechanical energy, turned wheels and ran mills, well, they're not around anymore. And so those dams are still in place, even if the mills aren't. And so they're not serving a purpose. And actually, the dam is actually affecting making your river healthy, right? Because it impounds water, it warms water, collects sediment, and it doesn't allow for that flow to function in a way that actually is more protective when you have flooding events. So that's a deadbeat dam. It's not serving a purpose. And we work very hard to be able to remove those dams. Is the Conservancy okay with dams that do still serve a purpose? Yes. So the Connecticut River watershed generates a lot of electricity from water. There are many hydroelectric stations. And in New England, it's about 15% of our energy comes from hydropower. And of that 15%, about a third comes from the Connecticut River watershed. So that's a lot of wet electrons. And that hydroelectricity is generated in a way that's very, very low carbon and is part of our climate mitigation strategies. So hydropower, it's around for the duration, but it needs to operate in a way that it's not in competition with a healthy river. And how do you do that? Is that why you put in things such as fish ladders and things like that? Yeah. So if you own a hydroelectric dam, so Aaron's Hydropower Company, you would have a license from the federal government, and the federal law says you're being given a right by us, the public, because it's important to remember we all own surface water, right? It's a public resource. So we're giving Aaron's Hydropower Company the right to use our water to generate electricity that we need, but you have to be able to provide benefits back to the public. And that means things like fish passage, recreational amenities, flow that's not going to basically take all the water for hydro at the expense of the critters that live in the river. So fish passage is a very important part of a hydropower project that operates in a way that's ecologically friendly. Speaking of those critters, the Conservancy from time to time does a survey of the populations in the watershed. And one you are undertaking right now is a survey of lamprey. Tell us about that. Sure. So again, the the Conservancy works with a lot of state and federal agencies to help restore all the migratory species in our rivers. And there's a bunch of migratory species beyond the, the salmon or the shad that people tend to think about. And so we think it's really important to restore populations of sea lamprey. Now, a lot of people have an immediate reaction to sea lamprey. Well, I mean, two reactions. The first one is, ah, that's a scary looking fish. And is it going to like attach onto me? And the other reaction is they don't belong in our river. Well, sea lampreys are native to river systems. When they're in places like Lake Champlain, not good. Great Lakes, not good. But in our river systems, they're native and there's not enough of them. And so we want people to respect the lamprey uh, for the job it does and to recognize that it's got a really incredible uh, natural history story. And what job does it do? I understand that it's, it's rather unique in the way it provides nutrition for other living things in the river. I can tell you already love your lamprey. <laughs> so a sea lamprey, 
is a, um, a migratory fish. Like many fish, it spends parts of its life in the ocean and parts of its life in the freshwater systems. And so those migratory fish that have evolved this way have some unique adaptations. So you're a sea lamprey in the spring and you're swimming up the river. You've lived in the ocean for a couple of years. You're swimming upstream. And the, the interesting part about the watershed is that up to 200 miles of the main stem is available to these migratory fish, right? So historically, the Bellows Falls waterfall was sort of the limit of what a, a migratory fish could pass. So you're swimming upstream, you're dying, you're blind, you're starting to lose your teeth, and your insides have shriveled to nothing except holding the eggs and sperm that is going to make the family. And you're swimming up past dams, and what you're going to do is find a stream, and you're going to build a nest. And so with your mouth in this stream, you pick up rocks and you make a nest. Fish make nests. And so they turn over these rocks into a round nest. It's about maybe 18 inches across. And then at the bottom, the downstream end of that nest, they make a little wall or dam. They're amazing hydrologic engineers because in a flowing stream, and it's maybe knee deep at most, they create this dam, and it creates a perfectly still pool of water. And they broadcast release their eggs and sperm, and they settle to the bottom of that nest. And the little babies, they're called amacetes. The amacetes then drift down to the um, end of that stream, and they find soft sediment. And they wiggle into the mud, and for four years, they filter feed. And so these little lamprey are filter feeders, and they don't have that round mouth with the teeth. And what they're doing then for four years is they're releasing pheromones. And pheromones are those biological compounds at concentrations of like one part per trillion induce biological behavior. So there's human pheromones. So imagine these babies are in a stream, I don't know, 140 miles north of Long Island Sound. And these pheromones are drifting out the river. You're a sea lamprey some spring, and you're swimming in the ocean, and you swim by the Connecticut and Long Island Sound, and you smell those pheromones from 150 miles north, and you swim up the river till you find those pheromones and make another nest and produce more sea lamprey. Now, the other part of the life cycle is after you've made your family, you die. 100% of them die. What happens then? These sea lamprey are actually importing nutrients from the ocean, whether it's micronutrients, boron and magnesium and all those salts that are in the ocean. And those nutrients are released into these freshwater streams. And we know that the nutrients then are taken up by the bugs and the plants and the trees and they wouldn't get those nutrients otherwise. So the freshwater ecosystem has evolved in coordination with the sea lamprey in order to be successful. So we think that more people should understand the life cycle, appreciate how sea lamprey help make rivers healthy, and we want those rivers to be full of life with things like lamprey, as well as shad and river herring or alewife, or short-nosed sturgeon, or those other migratory species. So number one, they're not eel. And number two, leave them alone if you encounter them. Leave them alone and say, hi, how you doing? Good luck. Make more.
You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Andy Fisk. He is executive director of the Connecticut River Conservancy. One of your major events every year is the Source to Sea Cleanup, and that is coming up in September, late September this year. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, and so as we were talking about before, unfortunately there's a history of um, past trash in our rivers, and unfortunately there's a lot of current trash in our rivers. And so for 23 years we have been running what is now one of the nation's largest river cleanups. And so on the 27th and 28th of September, um, each year it's between two and 3,000 people come out and they work in groups, whether that's a scout troop, a church group, an employee group, and they work along uh, the tributaries and the main stem to clean up our rivers. And so every year, unfortunately, we remove between 40 and 45 tons of trash, thousands of plastic bottles, cans, cups, average about 800 tires that are removed every year, and then cars, bridges, propane tanks, furniture, you name it, it's been taken out of our rivers. Strangest item you've ever found? Uh, We have that contest every year. Um, So old wagon wheels, um, weird dolls, safes, uh, guns, all kinds of stuff. And if people want to take part in this, what can they do? Uh, Come to our website, ctriver.org, and it's the source to see cleanup. And the event is set up so that you can start your own group. You can join an existing group. There's a map that will show you where cleanup sites um, are available to people to work on. So it's a very user-friendly event. So please come visit the website. Join us on the 27th or 28th of September. And the other part of the event is, frankly, we're a little tired. And we don't want to keep doing this. And we hope to put ourselves out of business one day. So there's a lot of work to be able to solve trash before it starts. And so we work on policy solutions. There's a financial incentive for people to get rid of trash illegally. And we think if you create policy solutions, and the state of Connecticut has actually done a really good job with some of this, you're not going to have people illegally disposing of trash. And then we also want to see products made differently, right? And so we see a lot of plastic in our environment. And ultimately, we're going to figure out a way to manufacture plastic so that it's not a pollutant. We want to push that conversation. And you'll see that um, a lot of uh, docks in our river systems are floating on styrofoam. And so a lot of docks are actually contributing microplastic or small pieces of styrofoam that end up in the environment and look like food. And we've heard that story about how aquatic organisms in a freshwater environment or the ocean are actually eating plastic. So people can take action by having a more river-friendly dock and not using unenclosed styrofoam. So we're pushing for solutions, and there's a lot of ways that people making individual decisions, as well as engaging with businesses and companies, can help us stop trash before it starts. Why is it so important to plant trees along the river? Is that to provide shade and and cool the water, or does it provide other benefits as well? Yeah, the good thing about um, a lot of these um, initiatives is it's got multiple benefits. So yes, unfortunately, a lot of our riverbanks don't have enough trees, and the trees have been cut down for a view to increase more farmland. And what that means is the river habitat is not as healthy as it could be. 
and rivers are warmer than they could be. So planting a tree is a great way to be able to restore river habitat, also uh, make the environment look better. And we know that planting trees is a very significant part of adapting and mitigating climate change. So it does a lot of good work. Our organization this year will remove, excuse me, remove, will plant 10,000 trees. We've done about 30,000 plus trees in the last four or five years. So it's a big part of the work that we do. Is it important to choose the right kind of tree? That it is. That it is. So yes, all the work that we do is planting native uh, trees and shrubs. Unfortunately, we see a lot of these riverbanks or places where people have not paid attention to the forest or the trees. You'll see a lot of invasive species. So much of the work before the tree planting is actually removing the invasive plants and then putting in native trees and shrubs. Is another one of your objectives to restore access to the Connecticut River and, you know, the the tributaries that that flow into it? Absolutely. And that's that full of life part, right? So we were talking about the the fins and flippers and pinchers. So uh, hands and feet full of life. We definitely want to see more people enjoying our rivers. And so we do a lot of work to support local communities' efforts to make parks along the river. Uh, Our work is directly connected to an effort to establish a source to see Paddler's Trail. And so we work with a number of other organizations to create access points, campsites on the river for paddling, so that you can paddle from the source of the river at 4th Connecticut Lake, north of Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, and camp and have access points all along the way until you get to Long Island Sound. And that objective of giving better access to the river, that can work hand-in-hand with ensuring that the river and the the banks are resilient to flooding. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And so I think we find that it's really important for people to remember that this is a public trust resource. We all own the water. Right. And so we figure we have to figure out how to share. Right. Our river does a lot of work for us. It supports a lot of different species besides us. And so managing the resource for everybody is really important. And when you get people to the river and you provide them opportunities to get to the river or take meaningful action on its behalf has multiple benefits. And when you have healthy riverbanks and you allow for river flow to function as naturally as possible, you actually have those benefits of adapting and mitigating climate change, preventing damage from flooding, and providing more opportunities for people to have fun on their river. I think about you know the parks in the Hartford area that are designed to flood. Exactly. And so we um, here in Hartford have done a really good job being able to manage around that flooding. There are other places where you can have um, a natural floodplain that may not have the same level of infrastructure. And so those places, people may not see what's happening. But that idea of a river system having a functional floodplain is incredibly important because what that means is you're not going to have high energy avulsive or scouring flooding damaging human infrastructure. And that's that part of living with our river rather than strictly walling it off and trying to make the flow go away downstream because that doesn't work it just creates a problem for our neighbors andy if people want to learn more about the connecticut river conservancy how can they do that sure we love to have people engage with our work and you can learn a lot about us at our website which is ctriver 
org, or just look at Connecticut River Conservancy, and you'll see a tremendous amount of opportunities to come out and have fun, take meaningful action on the part of your rivers, or just get great information about how you can use and enjoy it. He is Andy Fisk, Executive Director of the Connecticut River Conservancy. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.